Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. A couple weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go to Kenya. And um, coming back, uh, flew into San Francisco Airport. And after about 24 plus hours of just traveling, um, a little bleary-eyed, uh, got my car, got on the uh, uh, San Mateo Bridge, came up Highway 880, and, um, and then I guess just because I was just so out of it, um, I actually missed that connector to 980 that takes you to Highway 24. Anybody ever missed that connection? It puts you on a stretch of freeway. And, and I didn't realize it until I passed it. And I go, Wait, this does not look familiar. Where am I? You know? and, and I realized that I had gotten on the, the next exit. If I didn't take the next exit, I was going to end up back on the Bay Bridge going back into San Francisco. So I quickly took the exit, whipped back around, got on the freeway going back the other way. And I said, well, that's fine. I'll just get, you know, and when I get to that, I'll just cut over to 980 and I'll get home. Well, there is no connector from that side going that way. So I had to take another exit. And I ended up in a part of Oakland that you do not want to be at 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> Anybody ever done that? Found yourself in a place where you don't want to be? You're not sure how you get there, and you sure shooting don't know how to get out of there? Okay? I was thinking about that this week in the freeway series, um, freeway connection there, but I just thought, you know, that often happens in life. There are times we find ourselves in a place in life that we don't want to be, and we're not sure how we got there, and we sure don't know how to get out of it. And that's really what this whole freeway series is all about. It's called an imperfect or not so perfect guide to freedom. And, and if you find yourself at this point today uh, in a place of kind of a loss, a little bit lost, or, or maybe feeling kind of stuck in a place in life, and you're where you don't want to be, and you don't know how you got there, and you're not sure how to get out of it, that's what this series is all about. That you might be stuck somewhere in your past. You might be stuck in a hurt or, or, or an addiction or a compulsion. Um, you might find yourself stuck with anger, anger or, or bitterness or resentment or fear and anxiety. But you find yourself at a point where you're kind of stuck in one area of your life and you're not sure, where do I go from here? Through this series, that's what we've been talking about. And Pastor Larry started a couple weeks ago talking about this idea of awareness. And it's just slowing down the pace of your life and, and putting away the distractions, turning off the TV, putting down the cell phone, getting off of Facebook, and just stopping long enough to take an assessment of your life. And then last week talked about this idea of discovery, that, that when I become aware of those stuck places in my life, it's taking the time to kind of dig a little bit deeper and figure out why am I here? What are my motives? What's behind it? What's at the root of all of this? Why do I find myself stuck at this place in my life? And today what we're going to be talking about is ownership. That no matter where you've been, no matter regardless of your past, regardless of where you are right now, how do you move forward from here? And that's what ownership is all about. It's about taking personal responsibility for my life. And, and it, more, more than likely, is the toughest step of all, okay? And, and it's certainly tougher than anything we have talked about up to now. And here's what I want you to understand from the very beginning. It is so difficult, because it's difficult, we tend to try to find ways to avoid taking ownership. Because it's difficult, because it's a hard step, what we tend to do is try to find ways to avoid 
taking ownership. And by the way, that is nothing new, okay? That is the human condition. And it has been that way from the very, very beginning. And that's where we're going to start this morning, from the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, if you want to get your Bibles out or uh, your smartphone that I just told you to turn off. Um, (laughs) uh, Find Genesis chapter 3 on your Bible app. You can use that, your iPad, whatever you got. Um, We're going to start in verse 1. Excuse me, Genesis 3, 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman... Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And that pattern has been repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over again from generation to generation to generation to this very day. You and I have repeated that pattern countless times because taking ownership Because taking responsibility is so difficult, we find ways to avoid it. And if you look at their pattern, you're going to see these are some of the typical ways that we do it. First of all, we hide. It says that the man and wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, every time I read that, I think to myself, how stupid can you possibly be? Hiding from God in the garden that he created. It's like there's no place in this garden he doesn't know about. How dumb can you be? None of us would be that stupid. Yeah. When I was younger, you may not believe this, uh, when I was younger, I actually had a problem with my temper. And, and my younger sister, the oldest one, her name's Becky, she had a way of needling me and pushing my buttons. And, and we had this room... Um, in the house, in the downstairs next to the garage, we called it the rumpus room. Anybody remember rumpus rooms? I don't know why we called it a rumpus room because we kids were never allowed to rumpus in it as much as we would want to. But anyway, it was kind of a semi-finished off room. It wasn't really, you know, it was kind of where the extra leftover furniture from the old house kind of went and hung out. And that's where us kids would usually play. And and we were down there one day and um, 
I can't even remember what the issue was, but my sister just started in, and she started pushing those buttons, and she just started getting me riled, and finally, I just couldn't take it anymore, and I was holding a book at the time, and I just hauled off, and I just threw it right at her, and at the last minute, she ducked out of the way, and it stuck right in the door, and I thought to myself, uh-oh, and my sister said to me, oh, now you're gonna get it, and so being the creative hider that I am. Um, we actually had the, the, the downstairs. It was kind of decorated with um, po- pa- posters, travel posters. Um, you know, um, travel agencies used to be, before you know, all these other online places, there used to be travel agencies, and they have these posters about exotic places you could go visit. And so we, we had a bunch of those on the wall down there. So I took one off the wall, and I neatly put it on the door, hiding the hole in the door. Did not fool my parents one bit. <laughs> they came home that day. They said, who put the poster on the door? Oh, I did. Why'd you do that? Because uh, I thought it would look better there. Nah, didn't work. You know, we, we try to hide. We try to avoid by, by hiding or, or excusing or whatever it is. We try to hide, and the only person we're really fooling is ourselves. God comes. And notice he, he asks questions. He says, where are you? He starts with, where are you? And, and, and just all, all God does through this whole account is he just asks questions. you ever wonder why he does that? He knows the answer. Why does he ask questions? Because he's concerned with Adam's soul. And instead of accusing, what he knows is that, that Adam is going to have to own up to this himself. And so he just asks questions. And he did like we do. We hide and then we evade. So he asks a question, where are you? Now, when he asks this question, he's giving Adam an opportunity to own up, to take ownership, to take responsibility of his actions. And of course, given the opportunity, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, notice he doesn't lie. He tells the truth. Kind of, but he also doesn't really answer the question. He actually just kind of changes the subject. See, he could have said, God, I've sinned. I deliberately did what you explicitly commanded us not to do, and I sinned, and I'm guilty, and here I am. But that's not what he does. He does what you and I do. We try to evade. We try to change the subject. We try to give explanation. We try to kind of talk our way out of it. I'm, I've, I've said this before. I'm a, I'm a Judge Judy fan, okay? Anybody else here Judge Judy fans? Okay. What I love about Judge Judy on her program is she has a way of just cutting through all of the stuff and get right to the heart of subject. And she's got a couple of lines that she uses all the time. She'll ask a specific question, and the person not wanting to kind of face up to it kind of evades, and they'll start with, um. And Judge Judy will say, um is not an answer. <laughs> or, or she'll ask a question point blank, and they'll try to give an explanation and tell their whole story. And she'll go, no, no, I don't want to know that. The question I asked you just requires a yes or no answer. Did you or didn't you? Because she knows human nature is we try to evade. That's our nature. And we try to hide. We try to evade. And when that doesn't work, what we do is we resort to blaming. So God asks another question. And he just asks some point blank. Have you eaten from the tree? So he's tried hiding. 
He's tried evading. Now God has finally asked him point blank this question, and it requires a yes or no answer. And given the opportunity to finally take ownership, this is how he answers. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Way to own up, Adam. He just throws her under the bus, if there were buses back then. And notice his blame. He tries to kind of spread the blame. It's the woman that you put here. Things were fine around here till you brought her along, you know. Everything was good. And then you did. He blames her. He blames God for creating her. He does all of this stuff just trying to. And then he goes. Then, she goes, then God goes to the woman and says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Blaming, pointing the finger in as many places as we can. By the way, I just want to say, I think Eve gets a bum rap here, okay? Because a lot is put on her, and she was the one who was deceived. I just want to point out, okay, it took Satan himself disguised as a serpent to deceive Eve. For Adam, all it took was a naked woman. I'm just saying, all right? Hiding, evading, blaming... All of that is really nothing more than trying to take the heat off ourselves. Trying to deflect it somewhere else. In our culture, we call it victimization. Not my fault. It's not my fault. It's always somebody else's fault. We blame our parents for an inadequate childhood. Wives blame husbands from being emotionally unavailable, and husbands blame wives for being unappreciative and constantly nagging. If we're not growing spiritually, we blame blame the church. We blame the ministry. We blame the pastor. He doesn't preach deep enough. It's always somebody else's fault. If our child is struggling in school, failing in school, it's the teacher's fault. It's the school district's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. We get a bad review um, at work, and it's the boss's fault. He puts all these unrealistic expectations on me. It's always somebody else's fault. And somewhere along the line, we've got to quit blaming other people and take personal responsibility for our own lives. And that's what this step is all about. There has to come that point that we have got to quit blaming, start taking responsibility Because that's the only way to freedom. There is no way to freedom that does not involve at some point taking personal responsibility and ownership for our own lives. I like the way Mike Foster puts it in his book, Freeway. He says, you cannot blame your way to freedom. And it's true. You can't blame your way to freedom. Now, I am not saying... I am not saying that you were to blame for everything that has happened in your life. Okay? There are some instances and some circumstances in which, yes, you are the victim. And it was somebody else's actions or somebody else's uh, unjust um, hurt toward you. That, that does happen. Okay? I'm not saying that. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit next week when we talk about forgiveness. But today, we're talking about my part, my responsibility. Jesus talked about this. You might remember, he talked about this idea. He said, why do, you, why do you work so hard at removing a speck from your brother's eye and you ignore the plank in your own? 
And what he's saying by that is instead of trying to blame other people, trying to fix other people, trying to point out the flaws in other people, take care of your own stuff first. You'll find that what's in you is far, far worse than what's in somebody else. And you got to take care and own up to your own stuff first. And so that's what we're talking about. It's this pathway to ownership. And the pathway to taking ownership is through confession. That's how you do it. That's really what's involved. It's owning up to it. The Apostle John summarized it beautifully in his letter, his first letter. It's 1 John 1, verses 8, 9, and 10. It's a very short section, but listen to what he said. This is the heart of it. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. So for the last part of this message, I want to kind of unpack this a little bit. How do you come clean? How do you take ownership? How do you do this part of the step? And I think it starts with self-examination. John writes, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What he's saying is we are so good at hiding and evading and excusing and blaming that we actually convince ourselves. <laughs> we actually convince ourselves we're not at fault. And so it's got to start with some honest self-examination. The prophet Jeremiah put it this way. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So knowing our propensity to, to, to um, kind of excuse ourselves and, and, and get ourselves out of it, what we need to do is do self-examination, and we do it in the presence of God. It's what David wrote in Psalm 139. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, what I want you to know is this is deep stuff. This is not a superficial listing of minor infractions. Okay, this is taking the time to really examine my heart, examine my soul, examine my life in the presence of God. And we do that in his presence. He, he, he says his praise, search me, God, search me. Test me. Know my heart. Know my thoughts, my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me into freedom is what, he, what he's talking about. He says, lead me through this journey. Search me. Test me. Know me. Know my thoughts. That is a hard, hard thing to do. Those who are in recovery in, in the 12 steps, they know this step. It's step four. It's talk, it talks about making a searching and fearless moral inventory of my life. It's dealing with the deep stuff. And here's some questions you might ask yourself. Um, one of them is this. Where am I at fault in all of this? See, because... No matter how much you might be the victim, there's probably one part that you played in some of this. It might be 50-50, it might be 60-40, it might be 90-10.
but, but there's a part that you played in what has happened. There's a part that's played in getting you where you are and where you're stuck. So the good question to ask yourself is, what part do I play in it? Where am I at fault? And then, and then maybe another question is, what could I have done differently? What should I have done differently? How, how have I contributed to this problem? See, those are deep, soul-searching questions. And they're hard questions, but they lead to freedom. See, you don't ask these questions to beat yourself up. You ask these questions of yourself so you can find freedom. Because as you've gone through that part, now you're ready for the second part of it, which is acknowledge my guilt. It's admitting this is who I am. Instead of blaming other people or trying to avoid or excuse, we, we just say, no, this is me. This is my, my problem. And going through the workbook and, and going through this in myself, I've, I've had to come to grips with some things in my life that I've kind of left unattended for a while. And I thought, well, I, I just, someday I'll get to that. And I've had to stop and say, no, wait. God, what are you, what are you, what are you saying to me? And very often when you do that, Taking ownership says, no, this is, this is my problem. This is, I'm at fault. It's, it's my pride. It's my selfishness. It's my anger. It's my lust. It's my lying. It's my cheating. It's my dishonesty. It's my fears. It's my struggle. It's me. And I admit my guilt. John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive. Now that word confess Okay, if you don't know this, um, our Bible was originally written in the Greek language. And so what we have is translations. And, and the Greek word for, for confess is homologeo. Okay? Four years of Bible college. That's what I got out of it. Okay? Homo, now, it's, a, it's an interesting word because it's actually a two-part word. The first part is homo, which means the same. And logeo means to speak. And so confession, confession literally means, to confess is literally to say the same thing. And what that means is, is that there's nothing that you're going to own up to. There's nothing that you're going to confess that God doesn't already know. See, God asks those questions. He already knows the answer. He's just waiting for you to come up and admit it. Now, the good news of that is that what I'm doing is I'm admitting to God what he already knows, which means he's not going to be surprised. He's not going to say, oh, I didn't know about that one. <laughs> or, or, or oh, I didn't know it was that bad. See, he already knows. See, he's concerned about your soul in the same way he was with Adam and Eve all the way back in the beginning. He just wants you to be able to get to the point where you're willing to admit it to him and to yourself. When you do that, he says, he's faithful and just and will forgive. It's about something that Paul calls godly sorrow. See, there is a sorrow that I'm sorry I got caught. <laughs> and then there's another type of sorrow that's deeper than that. It's where we beat ourselves up and we, you know, I'm, I'm a horrible person. I can't possibly ever change, blah, 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 all that stuff. And we just kind of beat ourselves up with it. But there's something different that's called godly sorrow. Paul wrote about it to the Corinthian church. He wrote, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings death. See, godly sorrow 
seeks reconciliation. Godly sorrow moves us to change. Godly sorrow is what says, I'm tired of living this way, and I want to be a different person. That's what Paul's talking about. That's what John's talking about. That kind of sorrow leads to freedom because it leads to grace, which is the last step in confession. Embrace the grace of God. Because at the bottom line, that's what we all need. It is his grace that changes. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. See, there's only one safe place to take your hurts, to take your struggles, to take your failures, to take your your sin. There's only one safe place to take it, and that is the grace of God. And the good news is, this is what John says, here's the good news. He is faithful. He's not fickle. He's not capricious. He doesn't decide to forgive you based on how well you repent. He doesn't decide to forgive based on what side of the bed he got up that morning or what kind of mood he's in. He's not that kind of God. He's faithful God, which means you can depend on his mercy. You can depend on his grace. And he is just. His justice has been fully satisfied. You say, wait a minute, how can that be? How can justice be done? If I'm admitting I'm guilty, how can he declare me not guilty? How can that be just? Because on the cross, Christ took your brokenness and your failures and your struggle and your sin. And on the cross, God's justice was fully satisfied in him. And so we can come with our guilt and our shame and admit it and be declared not guilty because of Christ. He is faithful, he is just, and he will forgive. That's the promise. He will forgive. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you are not beyond the reach of God's grace. And he adds one more thing. He will purify us from all unrighteousness. See, that's the thing about God's grace. It's not just about forgiving the past. We talk about it often about forgiveness, and, and that's a big, big part of it, and we all need some forgiving, okay? But there's another part of it, that the grace of God not only forgives our past, but it empowers us to move in a new future. It empowers us to move into freedom, that we can move beyond our past, we can move beyond our present because the grace of God at work in our lives. I love the way Dallas Willard puts it. He says, a Christ follower burns up grace like a jet burns up jet fuel. (laughs) We need it just to function. We need it every day of our lives. And the good news is, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive, and he will purify us. It is the pathway to freedom. It is the pathway of grace. God has made the way. And he offers it to every one of us. Will you do the hard work? Will you take that path to freedom? Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.